0: Welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm joined by Director of Sustainability, John Pamelio, who is a previous guest of the podcast, and Assistant Director of Sustainability and Environmental Studies Program Coordinator, Pamela Gramlich. Now, this is also our first episode where we're recording in our new studio, and for those who are familiar with campus, we are in the bowels of Lathropal, 006 uh, to be precise, and uh, we are so excited to be able to share this moment with you, John and Pamela, as we talk about some pretty cool stuff uh, in the world of sustainability and um ways that Colgate is actively working to reduce its carbon footprint on campus. Both John and Pamela have led Colgate's sustainability program and have helped spearhead a campus-wide commitment to achieving carbon neutrality. And Colgate became the first college or university in New York State to achieve carbon neutrality in 2019. John and Pamela, welcome to the show. Um, Maybe for a little background, uh, John and Pamela, we could start by talking about just carbon neutrality in general. Colgate reached it in 2019. What has happened since then? And um, I guess, where do things currently stand on campus with our carbon footprint? Well, this tiny little thing happened between um,
1: now and the last time we talked uh, called COVID-19, a global (laughs) pandemic. You may have heard about it, but- It kind of really, you know, I mean, I think everyone knows the impacts that that's had to our academic mission or the way we teach, the way we learn. Um, maybe not as many people think about what that meant for our carbon footprint, right? Um, when, when we decided to do, you know, when we went mostly remote, um, starting, you know, in uh, full on in April 2020, that was, you know, it, it really impacted and reduced our commuting emissions, um, our energy use in buildings, um, our vehicle fleet emission. I mean, there was, there were a, uh, air uh, travel went <laughs> ground to a halt that all had a big impact on our overall campus carbon footprint. And, you know, it's a microcosm of what happened in the state and in the country and globally as well. Um, transportation emissions were down, and carbon footprints were generally down as well. So that um, we still achieved carbon neutrality. So we are now working on year number three of being uh, you know, the first carbon neutral college or university in New York State.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight what carbon neutrality is and what carbon neutrality isn't too. I think that's something that a lot of folks maybe don't quite understand. So Carbon neutrality is thinking about how much we're emitting on campus, and then how much can we reduce from our initial baseline, which for us was in 2009. And then what do we do after that to take responsibility for our carbon footprint? For whatever we can't reduce right now, where do we go from here? And an option is carbon offsets. Um, so that's really what we're talking about with carbon neutrality. It's not having zero emissions. Right. Right. Um it's not making all air travel go away forever. Um it's it's thinking about what can we do now on campus to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? And then whatever we can't take care of right now for probably good reasons, um what what can we do to still take responsibility and hold ourselves accountable for those emissions?
0: Yeah, and you mentioned it's different than being zero emission and, and what would keep us from being zero emission? It's basically travel, right? It's travel and then you know we're, we'll be
1: diving into this today I'm I'm sure but you know our backup energy system is still um, natural gas on campus it's a fossil fuel and there's uh, a greenhouse gas emissions associated with that so it's it's a little bit of um, um, energy and it's mostly transportation at this point gotcha. <laughs> so those are hard things to deal with right but the transition's underway <laughs> so
2: yeah and as John mentioned, it was actually really interesting last year when we finished our greenhouse gas inventory to see see those differences in transportation That's a really big piece of our carbon footprint and um, for our fiscal year 2020 greenhouse gas inventory, those numbers for commuting air travel, ground travel were way down. Can
0: you share those numbers are they are they wild like I'm curious about the difference in like the pre and post pandemic or-
2: yeah. Um, if you give me a couple minutes, I'll, sure. I'll we'll, calculate we'll back, a percentage we'll for yeah.
0: you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the meantime, I do want to talk a little bit about the heating on campus. or And and John, maybe you can talk a little bit about how Colgate uh, manages its heating infrastructure. Like what do we currently have? And then we can kind of go into the specifics on, on the wood burning side of things. But I, just what does Colgate use to provide its um, heating and cooling on campus?
1: Yeah, well, the right thing to do is to have a diversified um, energy source, right? So if, you know, if something happens to, to one of our supplies, we have backup. Um, so, you know, all of our eggs aren't in one basket. So currently what we, what we do is we provide the majority of our heating on campus and domestic hot water. I don't know if people think about that very much, but something makes our water hot, right? <laughs> And that's um, the burning of wood chips. Um, as a backup to that, we also use natural gas. And those boilers were put in place in 2014, so it's a relatively new system compared to our wood boiler, which was installed in 1981, when online. So it's one of the older wood-burning systems uh, anywhere around.
0: What did we have before the natural gas upgrade?
1: Yeah, it was um, fuel oil, Um so it was not just fuel oil like you're familiar with with home heating, which is called fuel oil number two. Um, this was a fuel oil number six. It's a really heavy, very polluting fuel. So we were, um, you know, anxious to get off of that when you're thinking about our environmental footprint and our carbon footprint. Um our gas system is a redundant, it, it, it can also take fuel oil, but it is the fuel oil number two, and we tend not to use that. But, you know, if in the unlikely circumstance that something happens to wood or to our natural gas supply, we, we have the option to have number uh, uh, fuel oil number two as a third sort of system.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the wood burning system itself? Like, how does it work? Is it just like a, a home boiler where it heats up water and that is what heats campus and provides hot water for the sinks, or uh, you know, is it different from from a traditional wood boiler?
1: Yeah, it's like an oversized. It's like an oversized, you know, uh, home uh, wood pellet stove. Except instead of these little pellets, we are using chips. And if anybody who's listening. Is super curious about what that system is like and the whole operation of it is. Contact me because we could probably organize a, a quick trip and a visit to our um, to our energy plant, and um, that's a, just a great way to see the whole operation and the, and the you know the folks who run it and make it happen day in and day out, which is critically important, especially in the winter. <laughs> you know, a few minutes. Um, when if that system goes down, everybody knows it, and our mission comes to a halt. Um, so it's really important. And you know the way that it works is we um, we get deliveries of wood chips to campus. Uh, in the coldest of days, you know, imagine a uh, early February um, day. Um, we'll get um, two to three. Uh, tractor trailer loads of wood chips, and they unload those wood chips um, to our, um, to like a little storage area, and they are uh, loaded into a hopper system, and then there's a a series of conveyor belts that really drops the chips into an ignited furnace, right, and that furnace Um, boils water and produces steam, and it's the steam that um, generates heat in our buildings through an invisible um, under-the-ground network of piping that runs to about 35 of our buildings. Most of our large buildings Hmm. are on that system. So um, that's hot water, that's heat, um, and, you know, that's that's pretty much the most (laughs) basic level of, of how that system works. Um, we did do a major upgrade um, a couple of years ago now where, um, and this is a game changer that directly relates to our conversation today, we, we upgraded our delivery and handling system, um, which was funded by our Green Revolving Loan Fund, um, a sustainability fund on campus that loans money for sustainability projects, and then the savings from those projects gets reinvested into the fund, plus 20%, so the fund grows over time. Um, so one of our first projects was to fund and a delivery and handling system upgrade to our biomass, and why that's really important is because... We, we are now able to use a different offloading system. It's about half the time, and it's automatic. So what these trucks do now is they pull up to a docking system, and then there's what's called walk-off trailers where there's a system of movements which unloads the wood chips from the trailer into our storage area automatically in half the time. And what that allowed us to do was to source the wood chips for a um, uh, reduced cost because it opened up the amount of people willing to work with us Mm. Um, because before what we had to do was actually drive um, a little machine we call a bobcat it's (laughs) a little sort of um, uh, front loader type thing and it would go into the trailer and shovel each bit of wood chips off into the storage area, which you can imagine does damage to the trucks. It takes a lot more time. So for you know people, time is money. Sure, It messes with log- logistics. So we were able to reduce the cost of the wood chips. But more importantly, we were to get a better supply and the chips are higher quality, which in energy terms means there's more energy, BTUs, per um, ton of wood chips than we were getting before. So, it, and this is a really important point, we can obtain the same level of energy with about half the supply of wood chips than we were before oh, because wow. the quality is so much better. It's like your home heating system. If you put you know, good wood in there that burns uh, really high quality... You don't need as much of it to produce the amount of heat that makes you feel comfortable.
0: So let's talk a little bit about um, the difference in burning wood compared to natural gas. I mean, I've heard for years natural gas is one of the cleanest fuels. And, you know, you wouldn't think, I guess, offhand that burning wood would be clean. How does that work out with our carbon numbers? And how does the use of biomass actually support our, um, our carbon neutrality at Colgate? I'm really glad you asked that question because biomass has
1: its critics and I think it's really important to kind of talk about that a little bit and why, why we think that um, burning wood at, at Colgate is, uh, is a sustainable solution and it's also good to combat climate change if you if you so one of the fundamental things that we try to do in sustainability is to make the invisible visible And what I what we mean when we say that, is we don't want to just look at what's happening right in front of us, but we want to look at upstream and downstream impacts and end-of-the-life sort of impacts. And when we're talking about um, energy, in this case wood chips versus natural gas, if you look at what's just coming out of the stack, um, natural gas does burn clean. It's got low, uh, no particulates, really, to speak of. It's got low um, greenhouse gas emissions compared to wood. Wood... By nature, if you know, imagine looking at a tree in the forest. About half of the weight of that tree is carbon. Mm-hmm. So when we burn that, that gets released into the atmosphere. Now why the US government and other leading um, uh, folks who set protocols for greenhouse gas emissions consider biomass carbon neutral is because it's on the short carbon cycle. It's on the the carbon cycle that's within uh, our lifetime, really. So, um, as trees grow, they take carbon out of the atmosphere, and that's the key point. So, when we burn them, and then they release that carbon back into the atmosphere, it's returning carbon that was recycled. It's some people call it recycled carbon. Uh, that's different from a fossil fuel, um, which has been buried in the earth for you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years and is now being dug up and it's new carbon in the atmosphere. It's not part of a natural uh, cycle in, you know, in human time frame. So the other parts of that too is, you know, if you look at it, um, the ups- upstream and the downstream impacts, um, you know, na- some natural gas is fracked. A lot of natural gas is fracked nowadays that comes with other types of impacts, right? And other um, types of emissions associated with that operation where um, harvesting biomass and milling it and doing all of that stuff also has emissions associated, but mainly through the use of fossil fuels to power equipment and transportation. Um, It's at a much, much lower level. It's a more local resource. And um, so when you look at the full life cycle of it, um, biomass wins out. Um, and there's a lot more to that story that I think is really important to emphasize to your audience today.
0: Right. Now, we all gathered a couple of weeks ago to, to go out to Gutchess Lumber, where we currently buying most of our or all of our wood chips. All of our wood chips. Yeah, tell me about why that was important and what you learned um, about it, Gutchess. But I think before that, Pamela, I understand you have some exciting numbers for us.
2: Sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So related back to the transportation that we were discussing earlier with um, the pandemic, our transportation emissions went down by about thirty percent in total. Um, Our greenhouse gas emissions from 2019 to 2020. um, Our 2019 numbers were over 11,000. Um, our 2020 numbers were 6,800. Wow. So definitely a difference there. Um, I will also highlight that um, our 2019 numbers were a little bit higher than they normally are. Just because of some upgrades to our heating plant, we had to take the biomass offline for a bit. So that that had an impact on things as well.
0: And how do we typically look at our carbon numbers? Is it an average? Mm-hmm. Is it every year? What What do we do?
2: So every year since 2009, we've been measuring our greenhouse gas emissions. We do a greenhouse gas inventory each year. Um, We have a calculator that was developed in 2009 by um, Andrew Pettit and John Pamilio. And uh, we've been using that ever since. And the interns in the sustainability office work with me and work with John every year to calculate our carbon footprint. So we send out emails to campus partners, collect data, send out an employee commuting survey, get all of that information. And then um, we take those numbers that we have, apply something called an emissions factor. So it's basically a number that represents how um, for every gallon of gasoline, how potent is that, you know, when it comes to metric ton equivalents of CO2. We multiply that together and, and we get our numbers. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice that it's an educational opportunity, yeah. too, for the interns. I
2: actually just started, um, I met with two of our interns who were going to be helping with us with this year's greenhouse gas inventory earlier this morning to start talking about um, what we're going to do and our plan of action.
0: Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Let's talk about how
1: Gutches, so how does Gutches Lumber play into this? Well, Gutches Lumber, as you mentioned, supplies 100% of our wood chips right now. So they, and 100%, um of their wood chips um, are a byproduct of their milling operation. So basically what we're taking from them is a waste product. uh, And almost all of our wood chips comes from Verona, New York, which is less than 20 miles away from campus. So when you're talking about the bioeconomy, the economy that's based in biological processes... Uh, wood products are a really important part of New York State's economy, and um, we're playing into that. Um, so the chips come from mostly from Verona. Um, a little bit further away, they might come from Cortland or one of their other milling operations, but they provide us with, you know, it changes year to year. Um, but, you know, let's just say 8,000 tons of wood chips come from them. And... Um, they, uh, you know, br- they, they meet our demand, and those chips are really high quality. They're clean, and they are the best wood chips that we've had, um, at least since I've been here, um, which, and we've been working with Gutches for a couple years now uh, on this, and we will continue to do so in the future.
0: You, you mentioned that the wood chips that we're getting from Gutches are clean, so what does that mean? Like, what's a dirty wood chip? Is it actually what I'm thinking in that it's covered in dirt? Or is it is there is there some other kind of uh, well, thing that goes on that makes a wood chip quote unquote dirty?
1: Well, before Gutchess, we used to get our wood chips directly from from the forest. So they would be, you know, treetops and limbs, uh, low quality, very wet still. They were not dried or anything. So The wetter the wood is, the less BTUs it has per unit, but it would have things on it like bark, not good for our, (laughs) not good for our wood boiler and not good for energy production and dirt, right? So now we don't deal with any of that anymore. So when I say clean, I mean, they're clean. I I wouldn't um, eat them,
0: but (laughs) you know, they they don't have bark and dirt and everything else, but (laughs) Gotcha. So the there's basically a calculation, right? The, you know, the fuel that goes into the collection of this, the, the idea of managing the forest too, is part of it too. So Gutchess has thousands of acres of forest that they manage. And why is that important um, as part of the biomass equation?
1: Yeah, when I was mentioning
0: a little while ago that, you know,
1: burning wood for energy has its critics. In a lot of instances, those, those critiques, are they're right. And so you can't just say burning wood is sustainable and carbon neutral. There are conditions associated with that operation. So the reason why we, we, we believe that our operation is sustainable and carbon neutral is because we're, you know, our relationship basically with an operation such as Gutch's where they own and manage about 29,000 acres of, of their own forest. And it's been in the family for you know, well over a century now. So they, they, um, what's important here is that the logging that they do um, for their business plan does not result in land use change. Forest remains forest. Condition number one. Right? Like, if you want to say that burning wood for energy is sustainable and carbon neutral, then the first condition that really needs to be met is are there, Is there any land use change with this? And if the answer is no, well, you're on the right pace. The other part is it needs to be a healthy, well managed forest over time. Gutchess is um, widely considered to have very high quality um, commercial products, timber. Uh, lumber. And the reason why is because if you take care of the soil in the forest, the trees also become high quality. They understand this, I believe, in our conversations with them and just have been working with them for a few years, um, that they kind of get, they truly get that concept. Their product is high quality wood. To have high quality wood, you need to have high quality, active, working forests. And that's what we We're a part of. So the reason why, um, so that's sort of the first condition, right? Like, the second condition is that we're taking a waste product. The trees are not being harvested specifically for energy use. That's handling a, a byproduct or the waste of their main business. Their main business is to provide lumber to, um, to all kinds of building projects, right? So they, um, a lot of their, uh, lumber goes towards making cabinetry, um, flooring, um, building structures. So the carbon that's locked in that wood remains in that wood. And that's where we feel like this has the biggest carbon bang for the buck. So what happens is, let's visualize this for a second. Sure. You have a standing forest, mm-hmm. and there's this carbon locked up in it, in the trees. That tree is harvested. Um, it's milled. The wood from that tree then goes towards some finished product, and in Gutchess's case— Let's say a bookcase. A bookcase. Okay. Which can last, you know, I mean, how long does a bookcase last? Sure. How long does flooring last? How long do cabinets last? Generations, potentially. Um, and then building structures as well, right? So, um, so you, you, you get that, that carbon remains locked up. And in the place of the removed tree, there's new growth. And as the trees grow, they pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's a really important part of this. Pulling Trees pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is not a permanent statement. Um, After a disturbance, the rate of sequestration increases for about 75 years or so, and then it starts to diminish. And then at about 200 years, um, a forest is considered carbon neutral. The amount of sequestration matches the amount of carbon emitted from the decomposition of forest products and soils. Mm -hmm. So actively managing a forest is actually a good thing for the climate, especially when the forest products continue to lock up that carbon over time. Again, Colgate's role in this is quite, I wouldn't say insignificant, because we're helping to make the business model, but we're just taking the residuals from... um, you know, from their operation. And if we did not do that, then they would have to find someone else or they would have to landfill it. Either way, that um, decomposes or it breaks down eventually over time and goes back to the atmosphere. What we're doing is we are replacing, in theory, a fossil fuel through the use of this byproduct. Hmm. And that's why we feel like we, we have a win on a number of levels here.
0: So is it like a properly managed forest will will take in more carbon than a forest that – even with the collection, even with the the machinery that's going in and pulling out trees, that properly managed forest is going to harbor more carbon than one that is just left to go? Uh, absolutely, yeah, over, especially
1: over time. Yeah, it's um, – there's a lot of research coming out of um, ESF right now about this – the role that silviculture has. In increasing the rate of carbon emissions over the long term, and in actively, like just, you know, I think through a lot of poetry and romance, <laughs> we we have this visceral, you know, sort of response like cutting a tree. Right. What kind of environmentalist are you? Or how is that possibly good for the carbon footprint? But you know, wood and forests can be a renewable resource and you know, actively managing that um, can have multiple
0: benefits on many levels. Nice. I, I do wonder too, is this something someone can do at home? Like, can they just go buy a wood chip burning furnace and uh, for their home and that'll make things better? Is, is this one of those things that is scalable down to a, a homeowner? Or is it not? Does it not work like that? I if, think...
2: Oh. No. I think one of the things um, when it comes to biomass that is so incredibly interesting is we are finding that it's very conditional. It depends on the other factors that are at play. So John went through those three criteria Mm -hmm. kind of that we're thinking about, or was it two? Um, But went through those criteria and, you know, we're thinking, we're checking these boxes to make sure, all right, this is coming from a sustainably managed forest. Um, It is a byproduct, right? Um, All of these other things. So- I think it just really depends on can somebody check those boxes and most likely probably if you are an individual homeowner, 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 um, you might not be able to check all of those boxes, but you could. You, I mean, there's a possibility there. Um, I think um, especially in this area, it might be also good to look into other options. Um, So air source heat pumps are really cool um, and there's a lot of really awesome programs out there. To help folks take advantage of those types of things.
0: So it's not like carte blanche to go cut down trees and burn them. It's well, I mean, I agree exactly with
1: what Pamela said. It so, you know, there's it's hard to make like pure statements that apply across different situations. So I think you really need to pay. You need to ask questions. You need to be smart about it, right? In New York State, for example, uh, New York State's if you just look at the boundaries of New York State, we're about 30 million acres in area, decent-sized state. In 1875, about 6 million acres were forested, right? So um, since 1875, our forests have been regenerating. Today we have about 19 million acres of forested land. So in over 100 years now... We've, mul- we've expanded our forests more than three times of what they were about 150 years ago. So why is that important? Because if you're looking at burning wood in New York State, well, our amount of uh, forested land and actually the amount of biomass in New York State is increasing year in and year out. Our forests are still expanding. The other part of this that's really important is that almost 75% of the 19 million acres of forested land is privately owned. And most of those, almost, there's about 700,000 families that own the 75% of New York's forested lands. Hmm. So a lot of these are small family plots. So if you're a homeowner and you want to go into your backyard, that's 10 or 15 acres, and you want to cut some, you know, some trees or take some down debris, and you're going to start collecting that for your home heating, well, it is really hard to find, you know, the negative impacts of that. Um, the, you know, it's, it's such a small amount of, it's a really small amount of wood um, when you think about how much wood is contained within an acre of forest, for example. Um, The thing you have to be careful about is our particulates, particulates, and make sure you're not breathing in anything that's bad. Hmm. The other option is a lot of homeowners are going, and myself included, I have a wood pellet stove. So instead of having like a fireplace where I'm using cords of wood and stuff like that, I buy pellets. And that becomes a little less transparent where did the pellets come from? The energy return on that investment is not as great as like a piece of wood. It takes more energy to make a pellet. Hmm. However, the energy produced from that pellet is is um, greater as well. The heat's phenomenal. Like it's really good home heating. And you know the part that gets a little less transparent is you can buy a bag of wood pellets from any number, dozens of suppliers nowadays, and knowing how they manage their forest or where that comes from is a deeper level question that people need to ask when they're buying it. How important is that to you? If you just want, you know, if it's not a big deal, just grab any old bag for the lowest cost. Um, If you want to make sure that your pellets are coming from a well-managed forest, well, there's questions you can ask and certifications out there to make sure that that's happening.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Is there, I'm, I'm also curious about the future of the biomass um, and burning at Colgate, the wood burning um, facilities that we have. That you said that was put in in the 80s. Um, are there, do you have a dream wood burner you want to put in here? Or are we functioning at the highest capacity with what we have? Is there a new future? like new technology for um, burning these wood chips that we currently don't have that we might move to? Or has the technology relatively stayed the same?
1: No, the technology is not the same. There's higher efficient, more modern uh, wood boilers out there now, gasification systems. So they, they burn the wood chips and then they sort of recycle that into get a second burning out of it. I see. Um, and... You know those those are really really efficient. With that being said, you know our our facilities team and the and the folks who work in our in our um, biomass and our energy plant here on campus are brilliant, and they do a really really good job keeping our wood boiler up and running and burning at the highest efficiencies. So. You know, I can't I don't know exactly what the efficiency is right now, but I think it's up around 75 to 80 percent efficiency, which is really wow. high for a wood boiler, especially one yeah. that, that's that's that old.
0: Yeah, that's impressive. So talk a little bit about our carbon offset program and how that goes into our overall calculations for carbon neutrality and how do we evaluate um different types of carbon offsets? I mean, we're I understand that we're different than someone, say, paying a company when they're traveling to just account for the emissions that might be on a flight, right? Colgate is looking at it more in a way that how can we make an impact? While we're trying to account for our emissions, what are the different types of projects that we invest in? How do we evaluate them? And do they last forever? I mean, are these things that we do and then, you know, they run their course and we have to pick something new or are these long-term investments for, you know, the next 50 years?
2: That's a great question. We measure our campus carbon footprint every single year. Um, So every year since 2009, um, we go through, do our greenhouse gas inventory and figure out what our impact is on climate change. And that's really what we're thinking about. It's like, what is our numerical impact on climate change, how many metric ton equivalents of CO2 are we putting into the atmosphere? And then we're thinking about how can we actually take responsibility for that? So since 2009, we've done a ton of work to reduce our on-campus emissions. Um, You know, When we became carbon neutral, it was around 46%. Now it's a little bit um, actually more of a reduction in our on-campus emissions because of COVID and the transportation things that we talked about a little bit earlier. But we've done a lot on campus to reduce our emissions. And so now we're thinking, okay, how can we take responsibility for the rest of our carbon emissions? Um, And the types of carbon offsets that we've invested in have been um, really a wide variety of different things. Um, So when we were getting ready to um, make our first big offset purchase um, to become carbon neutral, in 2018, we, we made sure to get a lot of feedback from the campus and community because we knew this was an important decision. Um, so we did a variety of different um, community forums. We did a survey that um, was available to the entire campus to provide their feedback and let us know what they prioritize and what they value in a carbon offset project. So do they um, value a project that's just really cost efficient? Do they value something that is maybe a little bit more local? Do they value something that has really great educational co-benefits that really maybe we could connect to a class, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And then what we did is is we took that feedback and we looked at it really carefully and thought about, all right, how can we invest um, in carbon offsets in a way that reflects what our campus really values and cares about? Um, So in the past, we've done um, a variety of projects, including um, some reforestation projects, one in Patagonia. Um, that ran its course, um, and also um, a solar cook stove project. We've done that before, um, and that was really interesting. Um, and moving forward, we um, reevaluate these things every single year and think, what does our campus really value? What do we care about? Um, and what can we do right now? What are our emissions, and and what do we need to invest in? Um, and so right now, a lot of our projects are currently um, methane recapture projects, which is really cool and interesting. So we're thinking about landfill gas to energy. And a landfill reduces a ton of methane. Um, That's one of the big emissions that's coming from a landfill. And what these projects do is they recapture this methane and channel it into energy. Um, And it's a really great project. And there's actually a lot of local projects for that right now. Um, So a lot of things like that. Um, And we do reevaluate every single year What's working for us? What's not? Um, what projects are just over, right? Um, and where do we want to go from here? What what can what decisions can we make that will really reflect what are our campus values?
1: Yeah, and I'll just add that you know who's the we behind this is we have a committee of faculty, staff, and students that took all of this feedback um, from our broader community when we did this big outreach um, program, and then they looked at You know, We heard loud and clear from the Colgate community across the board that they wanted something a little bit more than just the lowest cost offset. They wanted to know what are the social and ecological co-benefits, and then they also wanted a New York State-based project. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have this portfolio of offset projects that we invest in to try to say, okay, well, we need to do a good job here of balancing cost. We can't be unreasonable with that. Um, but also maximize the social and the environmental co-benefits that come in addition to, to reducing the carbon. And I think, you know, that's something that we, that we are consistently reevaluating every year. So we take feedback from the community. This offsets committee gets together. We look at all the proposals that have come to us from every project. Uh, last year, I think it was 85 different projects that came our way. And we had to evaluate all of those to say these are the, you know, the four or five projects that are going to meet our needs for this year. But these are all short term. This is basically just, you know, by definition, an offset is investing in a project away from our direct control. So it's off campus and it's removing the carbon that we're producing on campus because we can't or we won't because it's too prohibitive or it compromises our academic mission too much, specifically like air travel. You know, that's important for our research, for our education. Um, We're not willing as a community yet to stop air travel Mm -hmm. um, for obvious reasons. So as long as we have emissions associated with driving um, cars that use gasoline, flying planes that use jet fuel, then we have to look at other certified, really quality projects that will remove that carbon on our behalf so that we can make the claim of carbon neutrality.
0: Moving forward, um, part of the third century plan right now is clearly a lot of plans for building. There's going to be a lot of new construction on campus. Um, Obviously, there's going to be an impact there that I'm sure your office is going to be busily tracking. Um, But at the same time, um, can we talk... Um, just a little bit about how those new buildings might play into our overall carbon footprint. I know that for some time, and we talked about it when we last got together, John, but our, our LEED um, uh, standards, and maybe we can, for for folks who don't know about what LEED is, can we talk a little bit about LEED building certification and how, that, how we might be looking um, for um, that type of um, certification for new buildings um, as they come online—is that the plan? Are we going further? I'm, I'm curious where where things stand with um, sustainably constructed and energy efficient buildings.
1: Yeah, well, LEED is L E E D. It's Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and they look at a number of um, you know components to a new to a new building or a major renovation. Um, it factors in sort of the land use, uh, land around the building. It looks at transportation, it looks at energy, it looks at water, it looks at building materials, and it looks at recycling and recyclable products. So it tries to factor in, you know, these various elements or components of sustainability so that your end product is, a, is what we call a green building, right? And, you know, right now we when we're doing a new building or a major renovation, we try to achieve, um, I mean, our goal from the outset is to try to achieve lead silver so you get lead certification you got lead silver lead gold lead platinum is the ultimate one and we you know we've been um doing quite alright um, in this area in fact um, you know um, our our um, trudy fitness center um, Burke and pension halls And the Class of 65 Arena all achieved LEED Gold certification. And then Benton Hall had the highest mark. Uh, It achieved LEED Platinum and was actually recognized in 2019 as New York State Green Building of the Year, and we received an award for that. Um, So what that means is, you know, it reduces the ecological and the environmental impacts of the whole process of building a building. And then Leeds been um, tipping more from the project itself to the ongoing operation of the building. And that's really important because the over, you know buildings are they last a long time. So you don't want to just build a building and then have it operate poorly because it won't take very long before that building, you know if it's operating poorly the environmental impacts of that will exceed any benefits you may have gained from the construction process so that's really where we're at now is when you think about carbon neutrality our carbon footprint energy use on campus you really want to make sure that we're design we're con- designing and constructing these buildings and then most importantly operating them over the next 50 to 100 years in a way that reduces energy as much as energy and water and all those other resource impacts um, consistently and on an ongoing basis. So when you think about, okay, well, where are we now? And what's going to happen when we put all these new buildings online? Um, well, hopefully we'll design and construct them um, as efficiently as possible, like we did with Benton. And um, and then in an ideal situation, they will be replacing a less efficient uh, structure. You know, some people say that the greenest building is the one never built. So renovating or refurbishing or repurposing existing buildings, but you know, in in you know, so we try to advocate that as much as possible. But at the same time, it's just you know, humans love to grow and <laughs> we we like new things and you know, so you're constantly fighting, you know, sort of that tendency, I think, as, um, you know, human nature. And we just want to make sure that we're doing the best that we can. So when I think about this, I think, can we come out of all of this using uh, the equivalent or even less energy and electricity than um, than we were before all of this construction started? And I think if we can do that, that's You know, that's, um, it demonstrates our efficiencies. Um, It's not going to eliminate our carbon footprint. But the other thing that I think is worth mentioning here, the larger goal. So when we really step back and look at, well, where do we want to be? You know, not next year, the year after, but, you know, some years out, we want to electrify our campus. So. Instead of burning things for heating and cooling, we want to have things like Pamela mentioned earlier, these air source heat pumps or geothermal systems, things that use, um, you know, they're super efficient and they use electricity for heating and cooling. And then, you know, the, what needs to happen in parallel with that is we need to green how we generate electricity. So it needs to come from clean, renewable sources. And, you know, it's New York state law now to have 100% of our electricity come from renewable carbon-free sources. So if the state can achieve that, and at the same time Colgate starts to make the shift between more heating and cooling with electricity, then suddenly we've decarbonized. And that's the end goal.
2: Hmm.
0: Now we have one building, right, on campus that has geothermal?
2: Yeah, Chapel House.
0: And how have it seems like um, being the first? That's kind of where we can get our data, I guess. How has that worked out? Has it has it provided for a lot of energy savings and emission savings?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it did its job as far as you know reducing our use of fossil fuel consumption. So, um, and it's you know it saves on um, heating and cooling costs as well. Our electricity use went up because it uses electricity. Um, to pump you know the um, water and um, the uh, fluids through the, a piping network that's part of the geothermal system um, you know so I, I think I think there's things that we can learn from that project as well so that the next time around we, we do it a little bit better um, it's a good project it's served its purpose as far as um, reducing our campus carbon footprint and having a return on that investment. Um, but I do think there are a few things that we sort of learned along the way about how to do these systems and do them a little bit better. Um, and then, so that's a geothermal option. The, the one that's got some folks really excited and then I actually installed in my house. So I use my, my own house as kind of like a little microcosm for all of this. Um, you know, I installed solar. So my electricity use is carbon neutral. So I have solar on my on my roof, and I also installed air source heat pumps or cold cold climate heat pumps, which does uh, my heating and cooling for me now. So, you know, I do have my my wood pellets. Um, I don't have to use those as much anymore because um, you know because I am doing my heating and cooling with an electric based system, and that electricity is supplied. By sun, by the sun. Um, what's important is some people say, "Well, sun." I think this these questions are becoming a little outdated right now. And if people are still saying, "Well, solar doesn't work in New York," well, there there's a lot. Um, there's far fewer of those questions today than there were a few years ago because most people now understand that yes, solar <laughs> works in New York and it works quite nicely. Mm. But we have net metering here. So that means like this time of the year in the summer, going into early fall, um, my panels are generating more electricity than I use, and then I bank that. Um, New York State allows me to do that. And then what happens is in the wintertime, when my panels aren't producing, you know, the same level of electricity that they are in the summer, I tap into those savings. And then what I try to do, and I have done, is right-sized my solar system So that it's meeting my annual consumption. Hmm. The amount that the panels are producing meets my annual electricity consumption, so I have no electricity bill.
2: Yeah, in addition to what John mentioned earlier um, about plans coming up to have more buildings on campus, it's also really interesting to look backwards and think about where, where we started. So in 2009 when we did our first greenhouse gas inventory, which is basically what our whole sustainability Um, And Climate Action Plan was based on. um, We had, you know, a lot smaller of a campus, almost 200,000 square feet less. And (laughs) we have that now we have, um, we've grown quite a bit in our building square footage. We've also grown um, since 2009, thinking about um, the number of students, staff, and faculty on campus. There's almost 300 more of us, actually, probably more at this point with our new huge class. um, You know, 300 more people. So we are thinking about these things and we've um, addressed these challenges, you know, thinking about how can we reduce our campus carbon footprint and our carbon emissions while also still um, expanding as a campus and making this place as wonderful as, as it can be um, and it's something that we've been able to navigate really well with our green building standards and um, also paying really close attention to the types of energy that we're using and making smart decisions
0: nice do either one of you foresee uh, a larger green energy project at Colgate in the future
2: I think that's a really interesting question um, I think something that a lot of folks don't maybe know about our electricity we do buy from the village like, Um, like you might expect, but the village's electricity is actually can, it's certified as carbon neutral. A lot of it is hydropower. Um, And so we already have really good electricity, very clean electricity on campus. Um, So as much as it could be really fun to have a flashy solar array or something like that, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to do it. It would just kind of be potentially a waste of money um, that we could spend on other projects.
1: Nice. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And You know, I mean, I think if there's a theme to kind of pull out of our conversation today, one of those take-home points might be that, you know, sustainable solutions are often not universal. You can't say solar panels are sustainable, period. You have to look at your current situation and where you are and what makes the most sense in that particular place. So you know, I think, I think that's why, um, you know, when you look at the fact that New York State's forests are expanding, and they can be a renewable um, source of bioenergy and uh, support our bioeconomy. You know, I think, I think that here in the Northeast, and in New York, where we're rich in wood products and resources, that that can be part of the solution. Um, You know, if I'm in Arizona or in Florida, which is pathetically behind in solar uh, deployment, the Sunshine State, you know, I would think that those would be good solutions down there. <laughs> and um, and it's not that, you know, solar works here. It's just that in Colgate's situation where our electricity, as Pamela was just saying, is already carbon free and low cost. We need to focus on other things. And that's that's kind of what we're doing.
0: You've made it to question thirteen. Oh, good, cool. So uh, I always end with something a little lighter here, but I am curious, and I think it might be helpful for folks listening. Is what is what, if anything, do you do in your daily life to um, think sustainably or to preserve, to you know, to cut back on your carbon emissions that you wish more people did? Like, is there something that is an easy thing for folks to do at home to make a difference outside of you know, recycling their milk jug.
2: Yeah, um I have I've have quite a few. Um probably not a surprise to anybody, but <laughs> um I think one of the things that people don't think about that often is a great way to save you money. Um just buying less things, thinking really carefully about what you want, what you need. Um, and 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 thinking Carefully before you make a purchase, because every single purchase that you're making came from something is going to go somewhere after you're done with it, um, and there's emissions all along the way. Um, So the more that we can do um, to be careful and think about, okay, do I just want this? Do I need this? Um, That can be really helpful. Also, getting things used, Um, I think that's a really great thing to do. Also, saves you money most of the time. and can really help to reduce those emissions.
0: I'm laughing because Pamela took my file cabinets. I sure did. <laughs> so <that's> yeah. <laughs> John, how about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I think two of the largest environmental challenges of today are climate change, and then also um, the loss of biodiversity or population declines. So when I think about what can you do at home, while well, recognizing that. You know, nearly two-thirds of the state is in (laughs) private hands, Um, more than that, actually, but forested. Um, I think that there's a lot we can do as homeowners to sort of um, maybe remove portions of our lawn, our mowed lawn. Oh, I like this. And then plant, you know, um, native—I have a small property. It's only a third of an acre, but— I removed some of the lawn and I planted some trees and some bushes and some flowers. So I try to meet the needs in my little space on the planet, Um, something that's more welcoming to not only uptake carbon, but also support biodiversity. And in my little third of an acre, I've had over 80 species identified just in my backyard. And I think you know, for anybody who owns a small amount of land or a bigger amount of land, there are always things that we could do to take out potentially the ecological desert we call lawn and replace it with something that has more uh, ecological value. And if everyone just did that, um, you know, the, the land use issue of the climate solution would take care of itself. And in that and in, in the meantime, I think people would have a property that they could really put some effort behind and appreciate and enjoy more.
0: That was 13. Thank you so much, Pamela and John, for joining the uh, podcast today. It was great to have you on. Um, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if folks listening have any questions uh, specifically for Pamela and John about Um, carbon neutrality, sustainability, biomass, you name it. I know there was one uh, Facebook question about saying that uh, coal was cleaner than burning wood. Um, I guess I shouldn't let that just go unanswered if I'm going to close on that. But um, (laughs) uh, feel free to email us. So it's 13. That's 13, the number, and uh, we will get you an answer or maybe we'll collect all of our questions and do a special episode down the road here. Um, but until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Mariana Lemon. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.